Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Russell Honore came to national attention when, as a U.S. Army three-star general, he was assigned to lead the Department of Defense's Joint Task Force Katrina. The hurricane hit on Monday, August 29, 2005. He was put in charge of overseeing the federal emergency response on Tuesday night, 10 p.m. By the time he arrived on Wednesday morning, thousands of people were stranded on rooftops and in attics. More than 16,000 people at the Superdome, along with a similar number at the Ernest N. Muriel Convention Center. General Honoré gained a reputation as a straight-talking, no-nonsense leader who got things done and was called the Category 5 General and that John Wayne dude. He served 37 years in the military. He supported Department of Defense's response to several hurricanes, including Hurricane Floyd in 1999 and Lilly in 2002. He's now retired from the Army. He says his current mission is to help build a culture of preparedness in families and communities. And his books include Leadership in the New Normal and Survival, How Being Prepared Can Help Keep You and Your Family Safe. He's currently a senior scientist with the Gallup Organization, where he's working on developing questions to determine levels of preparedness. He's also an active public speaker, regular contributor to CNN, where he's often interviewed on topics related to disaster preparedness. General Honoré was recently in Utah as a guest of Logan-based company Musclewall, for whom he is a consultant. Musclewall manufactures and sells reusable flood control walls that are moved into place and filled with water to protect communities from rising storm waters. The walls are manufactured in part in Brigham City and can replace sandbags. They're also used by the gas and oil industry as a backup system to contain accidental spills. General Honoré came to our studios a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we uh, give you that interview now. So we're on tape, but you can still respond to the program by the usual uh, ways. Upraxcess at gmail.com. I'll get your comment on during the hour. If you email me something, upraxcess at gmail.com. You can uh, join us on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. You can call us at 1-800-826-1495. We uh, discuss Hurricane Katrina, emergency preparedness, Ferguson, Missouri, and other topics. Here's my conversation with General Honoré. Let me just start out with uh, with your work with uh, Hurricane Katrina. I think that's where uh, you know many people got to know you. Um, was, there's famous video still on on YouTube. <laughs> um, you were uh, assigned to lead the Department of Defense's uh, Joint Task Force Katrina. I understand. Tell me if this is correct. Hurricane hits on Monday. You're assigned on Tuesday night, yes, sir. and you arrive on Wednesday. 16,000 people or so in the Superdome. I think there's 16,000 at the convention center. At least in each rough estimates, yes, sir. I wonder, um, let me preface this by uh, by just reading the, the one of your dedications in the book. You, uh, By the way, the book Survival, How a Culture of Preparedness Can Save You and Your Family from Disasters. And you uh, dedicate it to your wife. You also dedicate it to the victims of Katrina who suffered far more than they should have and endured one of the worst natural disasters this country has ever seen. And, and I'm guessing, you know, you, you would think that government, the response, uh, did some things right, but also did some things wrong. Those were very much publicized. And there was sort of, you know, some um, pent-up um, frustration at the inertia to the point where that's where some of the uh, of your celebrity, you know, came into those YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are referred to as that John Wayne dude. Um uh, you know, for getting things done, uh, cutting through red tape, getting things done. And I wonder what the uh, what the lesson, the first lesson would be from that. Well, I think uh, taking into consideration the number of roads that were closed and bridges that were closed and the amount of the city was underwater, uh, the, the recognition there of the suffering of the people uh, was an acknowledgement that if everything was perfect, we probably could have gotten them out maybe 24, 36 hours early, if everything was perfect. But as it is in the world, everything is not perfect. And uh, as I said, I didn't get there till Wednesday morning. And we started to move people out on Thursday morning. And by Saturday, we had the majority of the people out. But it's an appreciation, too, to remind people that when you have a major disaster that takes away uh, 80% of the transportation and 80% of the city is underwater, it's going to take some time uh, to amass the logistics because when you look at disasters today, you know, the soundbite rule today of how well does the leader sound? Does he sound like he's in charge? 
Is he calming the people? Is he, you know, giving, um, stinging people where they need to, to act, give that appearance that they're in charge? But the real thing you need after a disaster is logistics. Mm-hmm. All the rest of that is theater. So, in part, it just takes time. Well, and that's it part takes of the time. Yeah. Okay. And you got to have logistics. Not, nothing beat trucks with yeah. stuff on them. Nothing yeah. beat airplanes that can fly. Nothing beat helicopters that can get you where you need to go. And you've got to amass that logistics. Remember that the size of Katrina when it came ashore was big as the country of England. So it's like traveling the entire British Isle from one end to the other. The impact of the landfall of that storm, 210 miles to either side of the eye, with hurricane force winds uh, over 100 miles an hour. So when you hit a space that big and you turn the lights out, it's going to have a degrading effect on the infrastructure. And that storm has its own shock and awe to it because our people got to sort out, you know, what happened to us, who's where, uh, if you need drivers, where are they? And, I mean, it took out a major swat of logistics when it came through. Now, days later, we were able to recover some of those trucks and buses, and, and they started to flow to the area to drive people out. But, for instance, the New Orleans airport was closed. So the first two days, we sent people out by bus, and by Saturday morning, we've got the airport open, and the United States Transportation Command uh, sent in some large airplanes to start moving people out. So uh, by Saturday, we had a good flow of aircraft uh, Saturday morning flowing out of the New Orleans airport, uh, going to cities all over the United States, taking citizens out. But we couldn't do that the first few days because the airport was closed and it was full of debris. Mm. had trash on it. So uh, that made a significant difference when we got the airport open as far as us to be able to evacuate people in a timely way. Then by Sunday, we were able to get uh, many of the citizens out who were had been left inside the affected area of New Orleans and St. Bernard Parish who were in nursing homes, people that did, were not evacuated before the storm. And that was probably the saddest part of the operations when you take citizens who many of them don't even know where they are because you're in, um, uh, you know, a bed-written state, elderly people, many of them missing their medications, and many of them uh, have no idea what's going on. And we loaded them on Air Force aircraft on Sunday afternoon and um, sent hundreds of them out to nursing homes all over the country. I'd like to um, – there's uh, – you can find this on YouTube quite easily. It's, it's a famous scene. You you come on the scene. There are some uh, military personnel. I don't know if they're National Guard or what. They mm-hmm. have their, have their uh, rifles, you know, essentially pointed yeah. at people, and, and, and you, you tell them, put it down, put it yeah. down. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, first of all, that uh, – you wanted to diffuse tensions, right, that the, the military yeah. is here to help and not to confront. And then I wonder if you would maybe – Compare and contrast that to the yeah. uh, situation in Ferguson. Well, the, the scene was set on that the evening before because some statements had been made by some of the local generals that they were going to go in and take back the city. And uh, the people that were saying they were not in New Orleans, they were in Baton Rouge or other places, that they were going to go in heavy with a lot of troops into the convention center and take back the city. And I said, where do you take the city from? I mean, I'm down there every couple hours. I don't understand. So there was this idea that the Saturday, the, the Friday movement from uh, the Superdome to the convention center uh, was going to be some kind of a military operation, whereas all it really was was a convoy of trucks taking food and water and to start working with the people to float them out on Saturday morning on buses to the airport. So we had to do some diffusing there of what we were doing, and thus we got into the mission of telling the troops to put their guns down, that there was nothing here to fear. And we come in to save people and don't point guns at people that you're trying to evacuate. 
that uh, all of a sudden this is not a an military assault operation. This is a logistics operation to get in, provide food, water, and comfort, and medical support to the people. Uh, so that was the context in which that uh, statement was made and tell them to put their guns down. And from that, we uh, able to get the buses in the next morning and flowed the people in the convention center. We um, National Guard did a great job of getting them to the airport, and, and that place was emptied by noon on Saturday. Mm. How do you? What lessons do you learn from that that, that interaction? And how, how do you apply that to what's your advice? Sort of after the fact now, but uh, to to the situation in Ferguson, Missouri. Well, I think the parallels are the perceptions that uh, you got a group of people there standing around that they um, that we've got to treat them with the end of a gun. And that's the parallel I saw because in that case in New Orleans, certainly the mission was to evacuate people. So why would you be pointing a gun at them? In the case of Ferguson, uh, the people that were in the demonstration, they're citizens too. And until they do something, why would you be pointing guns at them? Why would you be citing guns on citizens? And I said it then and I said it now. If you just arbitrarily point guns at citizens, that police force, if that's what it is, they need to be retrained because something is wrong that you would automatically point a gun at a citizen. I think sometimes people forget the purpose of the police is to protect and to serve. And I think after people saw what happened in Ferguson, it's, it's worth that we reassess how we respond to crowds. Because we do have something in the United States called the First Amendment and the right for the people to assemble. Just because people assemble, it doesn't mean they're uh, they're criminals. They're exercising their constitutional right. You know, women got the right to vote by marching. They didn't get it because they said, hey, why don't you let us vote? African-Americans got the right to vote and go in the front door, not because somebody said, well, it's time for us to do this now, is that they exercise their First Amendment rights to assemble. And even today, we've got people uh, who feel they're not being treated in a fair and just way. And I spent 37 years, three months, and three days protecting this Constitution for people to have the right to assemble and to be heard. So my approach on Ferguson, if you want to be heard, hey, put a stage up there, put a mic up there, let them talk. Mm. As opposed to what you're doing, what you're doing don't make sense. So if you're there to protect and to serve, and the people want to talk, let them talk. Mm. Put the lights on at night, flood the place, let them talk 24 hours a day. Let the cameras come in, let them talk. Because soon as you get in that role of trying to control when people can talk and where they can talk, where they can stand, then that starts to be about power. That's not about protection. Of course, the, the, the fear is disorder, uh, you know, rioting, looting. Well, people will move to civil disobedience if there is a – and it happened again in the two examples I gave – if they think the government is not responding to their wishes. In the case of Ferguson, the people's narrative was we want fairness, we want justice, and we want to be heard. And uh, the police was, uh, message was, the more y'all come, the more we're going to show up in police. Because the police narrative was control. And the police were the face of the government for days, as you recall. Nobody saw the mayor. The governor made cameo appearances. So the people are now seeing democracy through the muzzle of a gun. And then there were more than 
ample examples of police officers just pointing guns in people's faces. So, again, I think that episode, and it's not over yet, uh, gave us a window, a mirror to look in so we could see ourselves. Is this what we want to look like to the rest of the world, that when people exercise the First Amendment right, that we got the equivalence of tanks coming in and people sitting on top of the tank pointing their rifle? I knew what he was doing. He was using the sight on the rifle to see and to pick people out. But when you take a picture of that, it gives the impression he was sighting in somebody to shoot him with his finger on the side. That, that is a very, very disturbing picture. And, and I hope police across the country will take a look at that and rethink about how they will deal with people who exercise their constitutional right to assemble. And then what happens when people go civil disobedience? Can you walk up to an officer and curse him? Is that against the law? I don't know. Well, in Ferguson at that point in time, that was against the law. Hmm. Now, there's a thing called you know, there's a thing called assault. You know, if you come up and, and, and verbally say I'm going to do something to you, that could be perceived as a, uh, some type of, of, of an assault. But more often than not, what we saw uh, in the case of the Ferguson police, and again, my perception is they had become stressed out, they were tired, they were going multiple days without sleep, and they were in over their heads. And by the time the state police took over, it was uh, due time before something bad happened. So I do think that how do we go back and look at our police departments and make sure that they understand that they are to protect and serve everybody. Even if citizens show the discontent with government, it does not make your citizens at large the enemy. And we got serious problems when we start shooting tear gas with children in the crowd. You're listening to Utah Public Radio and Access Utah. Tom Williams with you. And uh, we're hearing a conversation I recorded with uh, General Honore, uh, recently, Russell Honore is a, a U.S. Army Lieutenant General, now retired. Uh, he was assigned to lead the Department of Defense's Joint Task Force Katrina and uh, came to fame at that time. He was called the Category 5 General, and that uh, John Wayne dude got the reputation of uh, being a no-nonsense, uh, straight-talking uh, uh, go-getter. And he uh, now is involved in uh, creating what he says, what he would like to see in the United States as a culture of preparedness. Coming up, we'll talk about uh, more lessons from Katrina and that culture of preparedness. His uh, books include Leadership in the New Normal and Survival, How Being Prepared Can Keep You and Your Family Safe. General Honore was recently in Utah as a guest of Logan-based company Musclewall, for whom he is a consultant. More following the break. Coming up on the next Bluegrass Breakdown, there's some of the most irascible, incorrigible, colorful, and charming characters on the planet. We'll be meeting with little men, lonesome men, lying men, lucky men, loving men, and sweet loving men. I'm Dave Higgs, and it's more Mighty Men of Bluegrass on the next Bluegrass Breakdown. Saturday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread, located at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, featuring savory European-style breakfast treats, such as quiches and a revolving menu of lunch sandwiches, such as artichoke basil and fresh mozzarella. Information at crumbbrothers.com. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest today is Russell Honore. He came to national attention when, as a U.S. Army three-star general, he was assigned to lead the Department of Defense's Joint Task Force, Katrina. We've been talking about that on the program. Uh, coming up, we'll uh, talk about more lessons from uh, Katrina, also a culture of preparedness. He feels that uh, that's his mission now, is to help us to develop a culture of preparedness. His books include Leadership in the New Normal and Survival, How Being Prepared Can Keep You and Your Family Safe. 
He's a senior scientist with the Gallup organization. He's a regular contributor to CNN, and he was recently in Utah as a guest of Logan-based company Musclewall, for whom he is a consultant. I want to uh, go to your book, Survival, mm-hmm. and uh, and pull out a, a few lessons mm-hmm. from Katrina and the other disasters that you have uh, been in charge of responding to. Uh-huh. One that stood out to me was, um, and this goes to, I think there was some frustration, the part of many people on what they perceived as slow response, yeah. inadequate response. And, you, and you've articulated problems of logistics and, and so forth, but at least that's the perception. So you talk about the 1,200-mile uh, screwdriver. Yeah. And uh, the, this has to do, I, I think, with you know command structure and with yeah. also bureaucracy. What if you talk a little bit about that? Well, there's always a tendency for the ultimate responsibility for operations on the ground lies with the government in Washington. While the actions on the ground are uh, in our Constitution is go through the governor, and those who go there from the federal government go to support that governor under the conditions we were working under and the laws and authorities we were using. But... As in any government operations, there are people sitting back in Washington who uh, have the time of day, and some of them have experience, and they say, well, tell them, why don't they do it this way? Uh, that is the the notion of the 1,200-mile screwdriver, not only to tell you what to do, but to tell you how to do it. And I never would buy in that how to do it, because if you want to tell me how to do it, then you need to find you somebody else, because I'm not going to sit here and uh, uh, start taking missions when you tell me how to do something. Because you've spent 35 years investing me as a three-star general. You put me on the ground to figure out how. You tell me what, and I'll figure out how. I don't need any guidance. But if you see I can use some help, you send it. And don't wait for me to ask for what I need if you know I need it. You know, Uh, so... Uh, that was the effect of the 1,200-mile screwdriver of uh, uh, there were people telling me to go co-locate with uh, Michael Brown, who was the head of FEMA. He was in Baton Rouge. I just said, no, I'm not doing that. And, uh, you know, they, some of them were from my higher headquarters. And, again, I'm going to tell you, you can tell me what to do, but you're not going to tell me how to run my mission. And in some cases, these were uh, – uh, like two-star generals who worked for a four-star general who was saying, well, the boss thought it might be best. Well, you know what? The boss wanted me to do something. He could pick up the phone and call me. But no, I'm not doing that. Maybe um, in general, maybe let me have, let me uh, take this from a, from a general point of view. Mm-hmm. Coming out of Katrina, and you've responded to, to other uh, hurricanes and disasters mm-hmm. as, as well, what's the biggest lesson you you carry forward. I guess another way to ask, yeah. answer that is uh, what what lesson do we learn to comply with the I next think time? the number one uh, complexity in a disaster is the ability to communicate with the people. Um, because we, in the military and government structure, we may, our capacity may go down, but we can build it right back up to talk among ourselves. And then people in America get confused because you see Anderson Cooper on the ground and you think the people know what's going on. But the people that need the help, as in the case of Katrina and days after, yeah, people in Chicago and in Salt Lake and Logan knew more what was going on than the people standing in the street because they have no way of getting information. So the, the, the effect of communications, the absence of, and then when you see that glimmer of light starting to pop and you can tell the communication is working, the police officers are responding because they can talk now. There's an ambulance on the way when you call for one because the grid is coming back up. Uh, that's a wonderful thing to see what can happen because those days when you can't talk, uh, people think that you're in up. But in essence, if you can't talk, you can't coordinate. If you can't coordinate, you can't collaborate. So you're a lot less efficient. And 
those opening days, if we needed to get a message to somebody, you had to wade through waist-deep water in a Humvee, go over here, get the truck you need, get the assets you need, now lead it all the way back until we got the grid up where people could start talking. So that is the difference between the earlier days after disasters to get clear communication of where the problems are, where the people are, and then they establish a priority on what you're going to do. And that was a major lesson for me is to make sure you get the communications infrastructure in as soon as you can and then disperse it so people can talk uh, and they have an idea of what's going to happen when. Mm-hmm. And then the logistic package to go with that. You, uh, I think this was in the book or interview I read, uh, you're talking to an official, if I remember this correctly, and he was telling you about his phone tree. Yeah. And you told him, well, the disaster strikes, you, you, the phone tree is going to go down. Yeah, I was a governor of Georgia, actually, after Katrina. I went to have a coffee call with him. I was living in Georgia. And uh, he was asking me a series of questions, he and a couple of his aides. And then I decided to ask him a question. I said, well, what happened if you get uh, a Katrina in Savannah? What would you do? He said, well, we would evacuate the city ahead of time. I said, well, how would you get the essential people back into the city that you needed? He said, well, we, we have a phone tree. And I told him, well, if the phone tree worked, you probably didn't have a disaster. You had a inconvenience. Mm-hmm. That, that hit home to me because I've been involved in phone trees. And, and it gives you a kind of a false security blanket, I guess, right. feeling. But I, I think you're right. Some of these measures that we think are going to work are – or we're not prepared. Right. Because the idea on the deliberate evacuation is you need to have a pre-designated uh, location for people to go to. So if the all of the police department is going to the university over here, all the fire department is going out with their families, and they go and shove into that university, you got two things. Uh, you recognize that people have families and they need to have a place for their family to go. They're probably going to be working late. They're going to be some of the last to evacuate. But then if they're not, and you tell them they're on their own for evacuation, how effective is your department when the grid goes down uh, and uh, the first responders don't know where their families are? I've seen that. I saw that in Katrina. That's not something we want to deal with. So my coaching to him was, if you're going to do a mandatory evacuation, uh, have pre-designated place for your first responders, EMS, workers, emergency uh, medical, fire and police to go to uh, around your universities or junior colleges, and to go in there to leave their families there. And then when you're ready, they can come back in to the city because it's certainly not a good idea to keep all your assets in the city if you're doing a deliberate evacuation. So I'd like to loop back around to maybe to government, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about individual and family. What uh, what is the most important? What are the most important things that we can do to to be prepared? Well, I think preparing to start at home, and uh, we need to understand if we got a job, we need to be prepared to be our own first responder, uh, meaning that. Of the 1,800 people that died in Katrina, 90% of them, thereabouts, came from what we call the vulnerable population, the elderly, the disabled, and the poor. And most of those that we found were alone. That the priority of the government, just like we saw in Hurricane Sandy, was going to have to deal with the vulnerable population, the elderly, the disabled, and the poor. So people with jobs, you've got to be prepared to be on your own. You got to be prepared to evacuate and be able to take care of your family and your neighbors. Uh, Because when the government get there, their priority is going to have to be on that vulnerable population. So uh, what, what, 72-hour kit in your home, your car, your work? Yeah, 72 to five days Mm -hmm. is what I strongly suggest uh, people to have. And uh, have everybody participate and then optimize technology, you know, uh, how you recover from a disaster is directly related to how well prepared you are. 
And even today, you could be sitting in your house burned. Do you have copies? Do you have pictures of everything in your house, home? Do you have copies of important papers on a thumb drive or duplicate copies in a second location, in a bank vault someplace? Or, and in the case of New Orleans, bank vaults didn't work because they got flooded. But people who had those papers, uh, their recovery uh, were counted in a matter of days started. When people didn't have those papers, recovery started in a matter of months. Hmm. Because when you lose 400,000 homes in one state and everybody's calling the insurance paper and you don't have a copy of it and you get a recording when you call in, trying to get a copy of your insurance paper so you can take it to the bank that your house was insured, you got to take it to FEMA, and you got to have last year's uh, tax filings. It's amazing what you've got to produce in order to put a claim in with the government and with your insurance and with uh, uh, donations that might come in, people you've got to validate your loss. And how you do that if you don't have copies of what you had and no general value of it. So uh, how well you recover is directly related to how prepared you are. And have a copy of important papers is important than the significance of water uh, and food and first aid kit can't be overstated, particularly if you're in a scenario where uh, the weather turned cold on you. I think we can survive pretty good in the heat. Uh, but when the cold come in, it has an added value of bringing your, taking your hybrid So you need to have uh, warm clothing or way to stay warm. And so with these principles, I, I suppose these would be the same no matter <coughs> what natural disaster a particular area is prone to. You know, uh, New Orleans uh, had the, the flooding after, after a hurricane. Yeah. In Utah, it would be earthquake, mm-hmm. you know, wildfire, that uh, that sort of thing. Yes, sir. So the same principles would apply, I'm, I'm guessing. Absolutely. Uh, the only thing is that, you know, your dirty quakes here in Utah, they can come in the dead of winter. So this time of year, you need to sharpen your skills on, make sure you're prepared on where you're, immediate uh, shelter place is going to be and um, to have your food stocks and your way to stay warm uh, on hand and uh, be prepared to protect that uh, after you have. Then know the battle drill. You know, how do you turn the natural gas off? Everybody in Utah needs to know how to do that because one of the biggest threats after a earthquake is the gas lines break, and if the main valves are not shut off, uh, some of them have emergency valves on them coming off the city, but that's still a lot of gas in those uh, in those uh, pipes that can be putting pressure into your home if you don't turn the gas off, and and that that is a very dangerous situation with sparks as well as being the capacity to turn homes on fire or to uh, take you down from the gases themselves when you become uh, uh, succumb to uh, getting the smell of gases. So knowing how to do that, I think, is uh, absolutely critical. Then the adaptions of the drop-and-roll drills that we have now, uh, as to what we had some years ago, there's been new information out on that. But uh, when I met with the first responders here in Utah, two years ago from the municipalities and the tribes, we had a big discussion about the, the largest threat most people were concerned about as far as a Katrina-type event probably would be an earthquake. So uh, how do you prepare for it? you got to stay prepared and have ability to stay on your own for three to five days until help can come because any one of these canyons around here closed, you can't get out. And if it's in the dead of winter, uh, what are you going to do? you got to survive. And then the the best technique I think we want to advise people is to work with their neighbors. And, and how do you work together as a team and sharing assets? And so getting to know your neighbor I think is a significant way to uh, be prepared in a disaster that might come with no warning like an earthquake. Because you might have an elderly neighbor who don't have the capacity to go turn that gas off 
So checking on your neighbor, I think, is critical than pooling assets to keep people alive. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Russell Honore. He is a retired U.S. Army Lieutenant General, and he was assigned to lead the Department of Defense's Joint Task Force Katrina. That's where he came to uh, prominence for uh, many of us. You can still uh, see those YouTube videos of of him in action during Hurricane Katrina. He's now retired after serving 37 years in the military, and uh, he feels, he says, that his mission now is to help families, individuals, communities create a culture of preparedness, which will which will help us all. His books include Leadership in the New Normal and Survival, How Being Prepared Can Keep You and Your Family Safe. He's a senior scientist with the Gallup Organization, and he's an active public speaker, regular contributor to uh, CNN. He was recently in Utah as a guest of Logan-based company Musclewall, for whom he is a consultant. More with General Honore following this break. On the next On Being. Because of the way we told that story, it set up a lot of young people for a kind of disappointment. And then it set up a lot of other people to say, where's your Martin Luther King coming from the sky to tell you what to do? Nathan Schneider is a public intellectual of the millennial generation, a voice of the passions and capacities of the world now emerging. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us. Sunday night at 8 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Four Paws Animal Rescue, presenting the 14th annual Moon Dog Ball, Saturday, October 11th at the Logan Golf and Country Club with a silent auction, hors d'oeuvres, and live music and entertainment. Information at 435-535-6279. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. One more segment left with General Russell Honore. He is a retired U.S. Army Lieutenant General. He was assigned to lead the Department of Defense's Joint Task Force Katrina. That's where he came to prominence. And uh, he was involved in, uh, in support for several other hurricanes, including Hurricane Floyd, 1999, Lily, and uh, 2002. He's now retired from the Army. He says his current mission is to help build a culture of preparedness in families and communities. His books include Leadership in the New Normal and Survival, How Being Prepared Can Keep You and Your Family Safe. He was recently in Utah as a guest of Logan-based company Musclewall. Musclewall manufactures and sells uh, reusable flood control walls. They're moved into place and filled with water to protect communities from rising stormwaters. And those walls are manufactured in part in Brigham City. They can replace sandbags. They're also used by gas and oil industry as a backup system to contain accidental spills. General Honore uh, got wind of uh, this uh, this new system and uh, reached out to the company. He's now a consultant for them. And uh, he was in Utah recently. That's when I sat down for this conversation. More with General Honore now. You, uh, you talk a lot about a culture of preparedness. In fact, the subtitle of your book, Survival, How a Culture of Preparedness Can Save You and Your Family from, from Disasters. What are you talking about there, a culture of preparedness? Well, I think you have a great example here in this community of the church uh, being an example of preparedness. I understand you took a tour of uh, we did. Welfare Square. And we did. Yeah. Uh, and if there's any way to... See a culture of preparedness is in action is to go see what the church here is doing. Uh, it is remarkable the level of uh, preparedness they have uh, not only accepted to take care of, in the words of the founders of the church, the poor, the widows, and the orphan children, but uh, also uh, Internally, kind of the concept I say, if you got a job, you need to be prepared. Then you should need to have a commitment to have your internal uh, capacity for food and water and clothing in the case of a disaster, whether it's man-made or a natural disaster. So very impressed. And if there's ever a way we're trying to describe what a culture of preparedness looks like is uh, what I saw during the tour yesterday. It certainly is in action here in Salt Lake City from the perspective of the church and the people who worship there and be a part of the uh, congregation, they they seem to have it. They understand what it is. How do we get the general population uh, nationally and globally to understand that on any given day, Mother Nature can destroy anything made by man? 
So we need to be prepared to survive. And uh, that comes with self-preparation. You know, for every dollar we spend on preparedness, we save $12 on response. Mm. So investment is preparedness pays off. So the lights go out and you've got a capacity to uh, listen to your radio, uh, to get information on whether you shelter in place or whether you have to evacuate. That's pretty significant. You can make intelligence decisions. Uh, it's nice to be able to have a flashlight with batteries that you can inspect your house or go out, God forbid, if it's an earthquake and find the valve to turn the gas off on your home. Those are type of things that that build in survivability. And then those are the type of things that say create a culture of preparedness that as you go into the winter season, there's a day and a time where you refresh your kit, you update it for wintertime, you put the right stuff in the back of your car, a blanket, a, a, a bag of sand, and or if you put your chains in there, Whatever it is, you, you prepare. You're cognizant of the fact that the weather's coming. Even uh, the animals prepare for winter. You understand? Mm. The farm animals are put on a heavy coat, domestic animals. You know, the bears go into hibernation. If we're so smart, why aren't we preparing for winter? So uh, do you think then that we're, in, in modern life, we're, we're sort of insulated, aren't we? You know, air-conditioned well, buildings, heated buildings, uh, or and, and even popular culture, and and, and right. involved in whatever we're involved in, kind of insulated from. Well, we have been as 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 convenient as the uh, impact of electricity and and gas and running water is to us. We become vulnerable when we lose that because we've got a generation of people who've never lived without running water in their homes and without electricity coming on and without gas in their home to provide energy. And when you take that away, uh, if people have not prepared, then it's not an inconvenience. It's life and death situation for them because they don't know how to take care of themselves. And I think now is the time to get people to respond to what I call the left side of disaster and be ready for the worst-case scenario. And the worst-case scenario here in Utah would be the earthquake. Uh, then we saw flooding in the past week. And I go around the country and people say, well, how do you know if you live in a flood zone? Well, if you live in a dry riverbed, you probably live in a flood zone. Mm-hmm. If you can see water from your house, you probably live in a flood zone. Mm-hmm. If you cross water on the way home, you probably live in a flood zone. This is not that sophisticated. But if you realize the fact, if you live in a valley and there's no mountains on both sides, you're probably in a flood zone. So uh, it doesn't have to be that sophisticated, but it have to be effective that you're ready for the most probable and the most dangerous. Because those are two things. The most dangerous here would be, you know, a high magnitude earthquake. But the most probable could be flooding. You've said that uh, you feel that everything that you learned in the military uh, and through Hurricane Katrina and other disasters has led you to like, a, an important mission for you, which is which is this preparedness, trying to establish this culture of preparedness. I wonder here, do we just have a couple minutes left if you could talk about that? Yeah, as I was leaving, uh, about thinking about leaving the Army after Katrina, I, I didn't leave for two years, but I remember a conversation my chaplain came in and had with me, and he said, well, General, uh, what are you going to do now? You know, you're the Katrina General, and a lot of people in the country know you. What are you going to do? And I, I started to describe me. I had no idea. And I do know that I was coming up on a retirement date at some time in the future. And uh, he said, well, let me give you something to think about. He said, most you think about it in this way. He said, uh, answer this question for me. What are the two most important days in your life? And like, I guess I'd been raised to believe the most important day, the day I met my bride and the day our kids were born. And he said, let me uh, give you something, another way to think about that. Think about the most important two days in your life is the day 
that you were born, the day that the Lord said it's okay for you to come out here and join the rest of the people here on earth. That's day number one. Then day number two is the day you figured out why you were born. What is your purpose? What have you determined to be your purpose in life? And after 37 years, three months, and three days in the Army, I determined my purpose was to be committed to creating a culture of preparedness in America and globally. And I've come to peace with that. It was not to get rich, although that's not a bad thing. I like being able to get what I want as opposed to just what I need. Uh, I like that idea. The other thing, in after retiring from the military, I've come to embrace is after spending 37 years doing what other people wanted or told me to do, because I've got missions, I now have the luxury of doing what I believe. And I believe that we need to have a recommitment to preparedness for natural disaster. I believe we have to have an absolutely commitment to end poverty globally. Uh, the presence of poverty create frictions and tensions all over the world. And you show me a place that is in friction, I can just about show you a place where the root cause of it is poverty. And uh, I'm committed to that. I feel good about that. And uh, I'm at peace with that. It's a good place to end the conversation, uh, General Honore. A pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for being here. I really enjoyed my time in the community and seeing all the great things going on here in uh, Logan. Thank you. Russell Honore is a retired U.S. Army Lieutenant General. He was assigned to lead the Department of Defense's Joint Task Force Katrina. We've been talking about Katrina, emergency preparedness, Ferguson, and other topics. General Honore uh, came to our studios uh, as a part of uh, a visit to Utah as a guest of Logan-based company Musclewall, for whom he is a consultant. General Honore, um, his books include Leadership in the New Normal and Survival, How Being Prepared Can Keep You and Your Family Safe. And uh, we uh, invite your uh, participation in the program. That can continue right here on uh, Utah Public Radio. Just go to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at uh, gmail.com. And uh, coming up uh, tomorrow on the program, we uh, have uh, for you uh, another uh, program on uh, climate change. This one is from the IEEE Spectrum series. They're a series of special programs. This one's called Adapting to Climate Change, which explores ambitious plans that engineers, scientists, government officials, business leaders, NGOs, and community groups around the world are making to deal with future catastrophic events and shifting weather patterns. Hope you join us for that tomorrow. Then on Monday on the program, we uh, have now a Columbus Day tradition, which we hope to keep going. Last year, we interviewed the author of a new biography of uh, Columbus himself. And uh, this year, on Monday, Columbus Day, we're going to have with us Charles Mann, author of uh, several books, including 1491, New Revelations of the Americas Before Columbus. He's also author of the book 1493, Uncovering the New World Columbus Created. That will be on Monday. Hope you'll participate in that program as well. And on Wednesday of next week, we have with us New York Times bestselling author Nicholas Carr. We'll talk about his new book, The Glass Cage, Automation and Us. In that book, uh, he uh, digs behind the headlines about factory robots, self-driving cars, wearable computers, and digitized medicine as he explores the hidden costs of granting software dominion over our work and our leisure. Even as they bring ease to our lives, these programs are stealing something essential from us. He says, Nicholas Carr on Wednesday, The Glass Cage. Hope you join us for those programs, and indeed every day, 9 o'clock in the morning, right here on Utah Public Radio, Access Utah. Thanks so much for listening, and uh, you're listening to Utah Public Radio. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. I'm Megan Van Frank. The United States has a long history of limiting immigration and managing migrants once they're here. This week, learn about a campaign to register non-citizen immigrants living in Utah. 
First This. The Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by the Utah Humanities Council with support from a We the People grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Imagine you're a non-citizen living in Utah. When you open up your local newspaper after a long day at work, you find out that the federal government wants to register you as a potential threat to national security. According to the newspaper, you'll need to report to the nearest post office, where you'll complete a questionnaire and then be fingerprinted. At the post office, you're told that after a few weeks, you'll get a registration card in the mail, and your fingerprints will be sent to the FBI. This may sound like a modern-day plan to root out anti-American terrorists, but it's not. The plan was actually part of the Alien Registration Act of 1940, in which more than 3 million people were expected to register with the government between August and December of that year. So-called loyal aliens were assured that their information would be kept secret, and that the only people who need fear were criminals and spies. The United States was still a year away from entering World War II, but many politicians were already jumpy about what they believed were potential threats coming from foreign-born immigrants. Bingham Canyon was the Utah Center for the registration effort. All non-citizens, 14 years old and up, were required to register in person. They were obliged to give details about their foreign military service, how they entered the country, what their occupation was, and the clubs they belonged to. They were also to provide a list of their relatives living in the United States. Those who ignored the government's order faced a $1,000 fine and six months in jail. Only two cases were prosecuted under the Alien Registration Act during World War II. In later years, however, the law was used to silence communists, socialists, and fascists. In 1957, the U.S. Supreme Court declared that some of its provisions were unconstitutional, but the law is still on the books. Sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive may be found at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. In 1869, the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad changed every corner of the Utah Territory. I'm Ken Verdoya with a political minute from Utah's public broadcasters. Beyond business and transportation, one of the most dramatic changes took place in politics. A solid Mormon population had made political parties irrelevant in Utah's early years. But the railroad and mining boom brought a sea of new faces to the territory, many who bristled at church control of government. Soon, they banded together as the Liberal Party, and Mormons responded by forming the People's Party. And for the next 20 years, politics in Utah were sharply drawn along sectarian lines. It proved to be a major stumbling block to Utah's admission to the Union and offered the Utah Territory hard lessons on the balance between church and state. Lessons that produced adoption of national political parties in Utah prior to being admitted as a state in 1896. Each vote is a part of our history. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Thank you for listening to Access Utah on Utah Public Radio, a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences on Utah State University's campus. The time now is 10 o'clock, and up next we have the Zesty Garden.